Our reading is from Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of the troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our reading tonight is right smack dab in the middle of the book of Micah. And a little bit of review might be helpful. Last week we read from chapter 4. Chapter 4 where God talks about his mountain. A mountain which is going to stand higher than any of the other mountains. A mountain which is going to stand even when other mountains crumble. And it's a mountain that is going to stand even when his people Israel are led away into captivity. Disciplined by God for their idolatry, for their wickedness, for the rulers who perverted justice and sought their own gain. They'll be carried off into exile, but that mountain, God says, that mountain will stand. And in the end, he says, all nations will be drawn to that mountain, and on that mountain, God will be in his glory. That's the promise for a people who are living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Imagine, among the people of Israel, many of whom, most of whom, had gone astray, there were some faithful. What were they to think about the coming exile? having a foreign army come in and drag them away from their homes, off somewhere else, far from where they belonged, far from what they knew, away from the temple, away from their customs, away from their families and friends. What were they to think when that disaster came? Did that mean that God did not love them, that he was not keeping his promises? No, in fact, here God says clearly, my mountain will stand. And he promised to draw them to it, Disciplined for a while, chastened for a while, they would return. That was his promise. He says, I'm going to draw you away. I'm going to send the Babylonians to conquer Jerusalem and carry the people off to Babylon. But there, God says in chapter 4, there I will rescue you. I will redeem you. You will learn, God says, you will learn discipline from me. And even the faithful, even the faithful who repented and turned to God and trusted in him, even they had a lesson to learn by being carried off into exile. And the lesson was this, that the route to the promised land is not a straight route. It's not the kind of route that you and I would plot. Just think about the people of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness on their way from Egypt to the promised land. No straight route whatsoever. Here and there and everywhere, led by God's command, 40 years they wandered around. What were they to think? God's just leading us on a wild goose chase. In fact, that is what many of them thought. But the faithful learned that the route to the promised land is not a straight route. 
God says the route to the promised land for you, that is a return from exile for you, O people of Israel, is a route that involves humility. First being subjected, first being conquered, and then rescued. And there's this beautiful promise that comes at the end of chapter 4, as God is describing what's going to happen to the nations that have conquered Israel. God's going to return Israel to their land. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to be home again. And all these nations are going to come, and they're going to think that they're going to conquer Israel. They're going to think that they have come to gawk at Israel who've been defeated by their God. And God says, no, they, they don't know what I'm about. They don't know that I'm just using them. The Babylonians, they think they're something special. They don't know that I'm using them. The Assyrians, they think they're something special. They don't know that they're my tool, my pawn, and I'm gathering them all close, God says, so that you, O Israel, can thresh them, so you can whip them and send them running. It's not a straight route to the promised land, and the people are to learn a couple of things along the way. Discipline, they're to learn the love of their father for them, their heavenly father who teaches them what is good and right. They're to learn repentance, turning away from sin, and they are to learn most of all, most of all, trust. To take God at his word. To believe that what he says, what he promises, he will certainly deliver. No matter how long it seems to take, no matter how long he tarries, no matter the obstacles that seem to come in the way, God will keep his word. That's a promise that matters for you as well. You who, like faithful Israelites, live in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. What is going to come of our nation, of our world? It seems to be going downhill fast in everyone's eyes. What is going to come to you when God disciplines our world, when he chastens us, when he sends disaster? What is going to happen to you? You will still have the promises of God, the promises which withstand even an evil day, the promises which are as firm as his word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's not a straight path to the promised land. That's the lesson that people will learn. And here's another one. This is the lesson from tonight. It's not an obvious choice of vehicles to get to the promised land. O you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, least among the clans of Judah, too little, be among the clans of Judah. It's like going to the store and seeing, not to the store, going to the auto dealership and seeing you know, all kinds of Humvees and Suburbans and trucks and then saying, I want to buy that tricycle right there. That's the one I want. That's what God says here. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you, out of you, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, out of you is going to come a savior. The, the significance of Bethlehem goes way back. You know this all the way from the stories of David. Remember how the prophet Samuel went to Bethlehem to anoint a new king to take the place of Saul. And Jesse was the one he was sent to, Jesse, the father of several sons. And so Jesse lines up his sons. And beginning with the first, Samuel thinks that each of them is to be the king. This guy looks tall and strong. He looks kingly. He looks outwardly like the kind of person we should anoint. One after the other, down the line, seven sons go by. And God says about them, this is not the one I've chosen. He says to Samuel, you look at what's on the outside, but I look at what's in the heart. You're judging the way man judges, and that's not how God judges. And so last of all and least of all, when Samuel asks, don't you have any other sons? The call goes out for David, who's in the field, keeping the sheep, doing this menial labor. The least and the lowliest and the most humble, he's called and he's the one. He's the one whom God has chosen, not because he has some hidden talent, not because there's something covered up in him that no one else can see, like he's got some strength 
or some might or some special wisdom or he's particularly clever or he knows how to use his small size to his advantage. It's none of those things. The thing that God sees in David is something that he has given to him. Faith. That's what God sees in David's heart. Which puts the might and strength and size and power and wisdom and cleverness of all of his brothers to shame. What do those things matter in the face of faith? So God calls David. He's the one. The least and the lowliest. David from Bethlehem. Too little to be among the tribes, the clans of Judah. Too little. God chooses David. And even at the time, even at the time of Jesus, Bethlehem was not much to look at. It was not a glorious town. It was a town in apparent, which apparently housed the flocks that were used for sacrifices at the temple. This is kind of an interesting historical tidbit. The sacrificial lambs that were used in Jerusalem seem to have been raised at Bethlehem. So it's the kind of place that was useful, but out of the way. Small, undignified, useful for service in the temple, but it wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't a big town. It was out of the way and small. And yet, and yet, everyone knew this prophecy from Micah. Everyone knew that Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be counted among the clans of Judah, that from that town a Savior would be born. The wise men, the wise men who consulted with Herod, they knew. That's how Herod knew to send his soldiers to Bethlehem. Well, it was not because a king arrived, triumphant, and riding on a horse, but it was because a little baby was born. A little baby born of someone who was nobody. Mary, who was lowly and mild, who also had nothing to look at except for the faith that she had in God. Nothing remarkable about her except for her faith, which leads her to say, let it be to me according to your word, Lord God. It's not an obvious choice of vehicles that God uses to get us to the promised land. Not a Humvee, not a pickup truck, not a Suburban, but a tricycle by all appearances. A lowly vehicle. Why does he do it that way? Why does he choose a baby? Why does he choose Bethlehem? Why does he choose the the children of David? Why does he choose you? Why does he choose me? Why does he use water? Why does he use words? Why does he use bread and wine, body and blood? Why does he use all of these things? Paul puts it all together for us in 1 Corinthians. He explains that God chooses the lowly things, the little things, the things that count for nothing. Not because he sees something hidden in them, some gem inside of them, but he chooses things that are, in fact, nothing to put to shame those things that are. He chooses foolish things, not things that just appear foolish, but things that are, in fact, foolish. How foolish to imagine that you can be saved from death and hell by being washed with water. He chooses foolish things to put to shame the wise. He chooses weak things. What a ridiculous and weak thing it is to imagine that your hearts can be changed by someone's voice. He chooses the weak things to put to shame the strong because the goal, the goal in all of this, the same lesson that he was teaching to the people of Israel, the same lesson that he's teaching to you and to me today is that above all else, we must trust in him. Not in our strength, not in our might, not in the things that we see, not in the things that seem powerful or strong or wise, but in him alone. He alone who is wise and glorious and mighty beyond measure and he alone who above all else loves you and loves you in this way that he's willing to send his son to die for you willing to send his son to become the lowliest willing to send his son to become nothing emptying himself 
being humbled and found in the form of a servant and dying on the cross, treated as the worst sinner in the world, not just by the soldiers, not just by Pilate, but by his father himself. He does all of that for you because of his great love for you. So as we make our way towards Christmas and as we prepare also for the coming of Christ again, do not put your trust in things that seem to be something. Do not expect the path to the promised land to be straight. And as it is crooked and as it is winding and as it is difficult, recognize that God is teaching you along the way. Not to trust in earthly things, not to trust in things that everyone else believes are great, but to put your trust in him alone. Remember, his word is true. His promises never fail. And he only means to give you blessings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.